triumphantly. Faith faces death triumphantly. As we uh, continue in our study of living by faith, the writer of Hebrews gives us a greater insight into what that actually means in verses 20 to 22 by showing us the final moments of life of Abraham's son, grandson, and great-grandson. He doesn't peer into their private lives to give evidence of living faith. No, rather, he takes us right to the end of their lives, the, the very, their very deathbeds, to show us that they obviously had, uh, they obviously had gone, gone out of this world in a, in a godly and righteous way, a way by faith. Seems odd at first blush, I think, to, to consider that it, what it means to live by faith by observing the way a person dies or a believer dies, but it actually is very telling. Assuming that the believer is, is right in his mind at the moment of his death, his last words become really a summary, a testament to the way that he has lived by faith in God's promises of future blessing. Uh, Usually the last words of a dying man are true, usually. There's no reason for him to lie. No one is going to incarcerate him if he tells the truth and indicts himself. No one can hunt him down or hurt him. He's going to die. (laughs) So all pretense is gone. It's all gone. And many times people actually want to clear the record before they leave this world. And I think that makes them feel as though they're better in a better position to, to face what's coming next if they're at all religious or even superstitious. But Christians aren't like that, are they? We are not like that. We don't coast our, our whole lives and then at the very end square things away with our maker, as the saying goes. No, at conversion, we're set on a course toward the kingdom. Right, And we have a great inheritance awaiting us, an intimate relationship to be had with God face-to-face and joy everlasting. And that's what we want. That's what we live for. That's what we die for. To live lives by faith also involves then dying by faith. And by all accounts, God takes pleasure in the death of God's saints because it's a time when they give assurance of God's faithfulness, a time when they can worship God, and a time to encourage others to stay the course. Those three things, I think, are very prominent in the way a Christian dies, or should be. Assurance, worship, and encouragement. These three elements should characterize God's elect both in life as well as in death. So take, let's take a look at this. I've done uh, the pleasure of, uh, or taken the, the, uh, the time, rather, to publish our, uh, our outline in the bulletin. So the first, the first truth of this, of this very important text, verse 20, comes from verse 20. Faith faces death triumphantly with the assurance that God will keep his promises of future blessing in his own time and in his own way. It faces death triumphantly with the assurance that God will keep his promises of future blessing in his own time and in his own way. Verse 20 says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, and even regarded in regard to things to come. Now, the argument of the writer up to this point, as you remember, with, with all these champions of faith in the Old Testament, has been that they obey the Lord with confidence and consistency because of their faith in his covenant promises of future blessing. That's what we've been arguing 
ever since we began chapter 11. They were counting on, they were resting in, they were holding on to as their guarantee God's heavenly inheritance of a better country, a better city that they would occupy because of Messiah, on behalf of Messiah's work. This was their inheritance and what they loved and what they longed for and what they craved. And so they served God in anticipation of this inheritance. They showed that they really belonged to this better country by the way that they lived as strangers and aliens on this earth. Even in the promised land, they they considered God's blessing of the promised land to be a symbol, a foretaste of the better country to come. Remember, we argued about that last time. Argued for that, I should say, last time. The promised land was not the last stop for them by any means. Now, that is how they lived their lives, with great anticipation of the kingdom, never settling for anything less. And as I hope to show you now, that is also the way they ended their lives, the way they died, the way they went out of this world. How does a true worshiper, a true believer in Messiah die? How should he depart this world? Well, the answer should be obvious to us, the same way that he lived, by faith. Faith in God's promise of future blessing. Luke records in the book of Acts, I'm sure you are very familiar with this passage, it's it's about Stephen when he was about to be martyred. This is what Stephen said, a bunch of other things too, but this is the very end, the last words really of Stephen. Behold, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They went on to stone Stephen as he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen served the Lord with his last breath, interceding even for his persecutors, as his Lord did just before he died on the cross. Stephen's prayer was that they would be saved, for that is the only way, of course, that God would not hold their sin against them, the sin of murder and others. And God certainly answered that prayer in saving Paul, who was there, right? If that's a shock to those, or if it's a shock to those that Stephen used, whatever energies he had left in him in his dying moments in service to Christ, it it may be because they don't have a genuine relationship with Christ. Or they're really only infants in their faith, and they don't know enough doctrine to make a difference in their viewpoint. Those two conditions were exactly true of the first century church to which the writer of Hebrews was addressing. Most were Christians, yes, uh, but they were baby Christians in Christ. They were baby Christians, doctrinally speaking, and they were drifting away from orthodoxy. They were immature enough so that just the little, so that only the little biblical knowledge that they have was certainly not enough to impact their lives for righteousness' sake. Now, there were no doubt unbelievers among them as well, as we've mentioned before. They were enjoying being with this body, and they were perhaps on the verge of trusting Christ Both groups were drifting away from the truth. 
And as a result, they were at a loss, really, as to how to live by faith in the return of Messiah and his kingdom. And if they couldn't live by faith, then they wouldn't finish well either. This is why the writer calls to their attention these Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11. Death, death is somewhat of a litmus test, I think, for individuals, for their character. It reveals what they truly believe. For Christians facing death, it should be a time, though, of rejoicing. Of course, the sadness of missing loved ones notwithstanding. <clears throat> but it's a homegoing, right? <clears throat> it's a graduation of sorts. It's the one moment that all believers have lived for to go home to be with Christ. If they would not see him return for them in their lifetime, it would be in death. And we have more examples of this consistency of faith from the patri patriarch era. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, three immediate generations of Abraham. But in their cases, the writer, as I say, decides to bypass instances in their lives and go right to their deaths in order to show how, how faith faces death triumphantly. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they were strong believers, and they do not disappoint to show us how to live by faith in their final moments. Let's see an example in Isaac, the context of Isaac. And I would add, Jacob also, as we'll see in a few moments from now, surrounds the ancient ritual of bestowing blessing. This was a practice among the ancient Near Eastern nations, and it included Israel, but in Israel's case, it was much more than simply a father's bestowal of good tidings and an inheritance for the kids. Now, it was transference of responsibility from father to son to live God's covenant promises to the world. God promised Abraham that through him, God would create a people for himself in his own way and in his own time. He chose a couple that was beyond the age of childbearing, in addition to being barren there in their youth, and he performed a miracle. God gave Isaac the miracle baby and the child of promise. For through him would eventually come Messiah, who would bless all the rest that would also come from Isaac's offspring, a body of people as numerous as the stars in the heavens." We have every reason to believe, then, that Abraham told Isaac everything. He told him the gospel. He told him how to have a personal relationship with God through the anointed Messiah yet to come. He even told him about the heavenly kingdom that awaits them, his inheritance in Messiah. We have only to look at Moses in order to be convinced of this. Think about this. How else would Moses have known what to write in his theological treaties that we call the Pentateuch, if he wasn't catechized in all of this himself. He was. Remember, Abraham and Isaac lived several hundred years before Moses. Abraham was passing on the great, the great covenant promises of God's future blessing to Isaac, who would live in light of them. So when at the end of Isaac's life, it came for him to bless his children. He didn't just give them a blessing. He didn't impart to them the inheritance of land so much as he imparted to them this legacy 
of God's future promises. The blessing shows really two things. First, it shows us Isaac, that Isaac understood that God has his own timetable and he would fulfill his covenant promises in his own time. Isaac knew this. Isaac doesn't get discouraged at this if it wouldn't be in his life that Isaac would see the glorious better country that, that he longed for and lived for, that Abraham told him about, it would be through death. And that was fine for him. The blessing also shows us that Isaac understood that God would fulfill his covenant promises in his own way, not just in his own time, but also in his own way. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, I want you to notice the order of the names there. At first glance, it doesn't seem to be a problem, but if you know the ancient Near Eastern practice of, of blessing at all, you know that the firstborn, the eldest son, received the largest portion of the inheritance and the greatest part of the blessing. Genesis 27 reveals that Esau was the oldest and in line for the blessing. Now, blessing the firstborn was a serious practice. It was. The eldest son became the head of the family. He had a legal right to be heir. It's kind of how the royals do it in the UK, where the next in line to be king receives the highest honors and the greatest authority, and his siblings, while they still receive a, a smaller part of the inheritance, are nevertheless under his authority. As head of the family in the ancient Near East, this one was to carry the family traditions and carry the family's faith forward. He would define the family's identity. He spoke for the family. He carried out the family's decision. So it was a very serious matter. If you remember the story about Esau, you would know that Esau was rather an irresponsible lad that was led by his feelings. In fact, he was, on one particular occasion that really mattered, led by his stomach. And he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Jacob then disguises himself as Esau deceived a blind Jacob, or Isaac rather, into thinking that he was blessing Esau when in fact he was really blessing the younger son, Jacob. You might be thinking it was probably a good idea, after all, that Esau was swindled out of his birthright because he was irresponsible at best, but not so fast. Obviously, his irresponsibility was not enough to disqualify him. And Jacob knew both sons well and was still planning to give Esau his birthright. Besides that, Jacob was no better. He deceived his father and he, he stole a birthright. So what's the significance of the reverse order of blessing? And how is it reflected here in Hebrews 11? Well, God does not rely on traditions of men to bring about his perfect plan for the ages. That's really the significance of the reversal of order. God does things his own way. We have already made the point, I think, with Abraham, God would not use any of Abraham's biological sons born to Hagar or Keturah. It had to be with Sarah, a woman physically, medically, and biologically incapable of conceiving in order to build a people for himself. It would be by his might alone. God prefers to work his will through human weakness. And with Abraham, it was old age and a barren wife. 
with the next three generations, it was to be it was to be a focus on the younger rather than the older, the weaker rather than the stronger. And so it's not it's not any surprise at all that in, in this rather universal custom of the ancients, God does the opposite, reverses the order, ensures that the younger and the weaker son receives the blessing in place of the older and the stronger. Abel, not Cain, found favor with God. It wasn't Ishmael, but Isaac, who was the blessed son of promise. And now we find God's sovereign decree to be the same in each of the patriarch's cases. Jacob, the younger and weaker son, received what was due Esau. And this reversal of order is God's means of making it clear to his people that he himself, by his own might, without any aid of anyone, is building his own people. And that's what Isaac understood. Oh, and in in case that you, you might be thinking that Jacob had his hand in this, you know, since he stole his brother's birthright through deceptive means, might understand that it, uh, it was, or find it hard to understand that it was God's plan, but it was that Jacob all along would receive the blessing. That doesn't mean that God condoned Jacob's actions, and if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob suffered the consequences of his deceptive actions for many years after. And in Genesis 28, verse 4, Isaac himself again reiterates the blessing, this time on Jacob, knowing full well that it was Jacob. And he says, may God also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you so that you may possess the land where you live as a stranger which God gave to Abraham. So God works contrary to customs. He works contrary to practices and norms. And we may see, it may seem logical to us, these customs and norms, but God works many times against them in order to bring about his perfect will for the ages. Old Testament commentator Philip Edgecombe Hughes puts it this way in his excellent commentary, quote, the line of promise is not the line of the flesh, but the line of faith. The true heir is not the outward heir, but the inward heir. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. For in the ultimate perspective, they who are one by faith with Christ, and only they are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That community of believers, in other words, who are not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, end quote. Now, even though Isaac was not intending to hand down the blessing to Jacob, the fact remains that he was intending to hand down a blessing to the next generation, and that is the crux of Hebrews 11.20. The writer wants us to know that Isaac faces his death triumphantly because by faith, he knew that God would fulfill his promise of future blessing to them in his own time and in his own way. <clears throat> he faces uh, death triumphantly with this assurance. He therefore transfers the possession of God's promise to his kids because they belong, these promises, to them as well. And so he urges them to seek them 
to look for them, to live in light of them, and, and not be satisfied with anything less that this world has to offer. Isaac would so with so confident in the fulfillment of these promises, even though he had not seen them in his lifetime, that he would keep the eager anticipation and expectation of them alive in his children. God's promises of future blessing were the greatest treasure that he could ever pass on to the next generation. You can see why this custom of blessing for Israel went far beyond the pagan practice of simply doling out an inheritance along with some paternal good tidings. It was his way of accepting God's place for him and for his children in relation to the fulfillment of these promises. They belonged just as much to his children as they did to him and to his father before him. They all had a responsibility then to keep them fresh in their minds and live for these promises. Again, Hughes puts his finger on it and says quite eloquently, quote, his faith was focused on the line of the promise. And this promise, as we've seen, belonged to him and to his father Abraham and no less than to his posterity. Far from being the end for him, his death was but a milestone along the way to that better country on what his hope was fixed, end quote. It's no surprise that the writer of Hebrews would select this incident of Isaac's deathbed blessing and of Jacob, as we'll see shortly, as his greatest act of faith. He believed not only in the promises of God, but his ordained place in relation to the fulfillment of those promises. It was God's will that he would die before seeing them realized, but he nevertheless welcomed them, and he accepted them, even at a distance. And when it came time to die, he could look forward to experiencing them through death and pass, them, pass these promises on to his children, who would prepare to enjoy the fulfillment of them as well, if not in this life, then through death in glory. I want to say that death is the greatest opportunity, really, that, that we have to demonstrate confidence in a faithful God. Think about that. God is faithful. He cannot lie. He will keep his promises of future blessing to us. The kingdom will come. Jesus will return. What the patriarchs said in their last moments was essentially this, I know where I'm going because God made me a promise. It's heaven. I've longed for its coming, lived in light of it, centered my life around it, and now I'll finally see it, if only through death. Not only that, but I can assure others, those who are around me, my family, that they can go there too by faith in Messiah. That's our message as well. That's how we think. And that's how we should think at the very last moments of our life. We know where we're going because God made us a promise. And in Christ, he will keep it. And as a result, we can assure everyone in earshot distance of our deathbed of the same promise should they want to believe by faith. Let me say also that faith faces death triumphantly as an act of worship. That's the second truth that we get from this 
wonderful passage in verse 21. It says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob passes God's promise of future blessing to his grandchildren, like his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham did. Now they're to keep God's covenant promises before them as they live in the world because, because they are the, the nation's they are the nation's blessed destiny, as well as the motivation for them to live in light of this destiny. They need to seek the promises, live in light of the promises, center their lives around the promises, because God's promises were the only thing worth living for. Jacob not only passes the covenant promises of God along to the next generation, but as we saw with Isaac, he demonstrated that God fulfills his promises in his own time and and in his own way. And he demonstrated that. How? Well, by giving the chief blessing, again, to the younger rather than to the older. Joseph, of course, didn't want this. Joseph placed the older Manasseh at Jacob's right hand, and he placed the younger Ephraim at Jacob's left hand according to tradition. But Jacob, according to Genesis 48.20, deliberately crosses his hands so that the right hand lays on, on Ephraim and the left on Manasseh, putting Ephraim in the place of primary blessing. And he, by this late stage in his life, had matured to the point where he knew, ironically enough, that God's ways are not our ways. And communicates that by blessing the younger over the older. Now, there is something else about Jacob that the writer of Hebrews zeroes in on, that he didn't zero in on with Isaac. In Jacob's particular end-of-life context, we're told that he worshipped God. It says, leaning on the top of his staff. And the writer gets this from Genesis 47, In verse 31, then Israel, that is the other name for Jacob, bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Hmm, slight difference in Jacob's posture, leaning on the top of his staff instead of leaning at the head of his bed. What's going on there? Well, it's easily remedied. Remember, the Hebrew writer quotes from the Septuagint, the LXX, the Greek version of the Old Testament, as his preferred translation. But why does it differ from the Hebrew Bible? Well, at the time that the Septuagint was being translated from the Hebrew text, the Hebrew didn't have vowels. That is to say that they had only consonants, and the vowels were, were understood by the Hebrews at that time. It was oral tradition. So the Hebrew word for bed and the Hebrew word for staff are the same consonants. It's the same word, but read with one set of vowels, it means bed. Read with another set of vowels, it means staff. So let me say that neither word makes a significant difference in the meaning of the context, which is that Jacob worshipped God at this very moment. So let's stick with that and not get hung up on the translations. That is what is most important for us. Jacob faith faced death triumphantly because he saw death as the last act of worship in his life. Do you ever think about death that way? The last act of worship in life. He knew God's plan for him didn't include 
includes seeing the fulfillment of God's covenant promises in full. And he bowed his head in submission to the will of God for his life, and he worshipped God. He went out of this world worshipping God. What a way to go. Should be how all true believers depart this world, if they still have their faculties at the hour of their death, of course. At death's door, so to speak, it, it became obvious, or should become obvious to any believer that he will leave this world without seeing the final stages of God's promise fulfill, promises fulfilled. But he will see them through death. There is some helpful background information in Genesis 47 that makes this principle even weightier in our eyes. In verses 29 and 30, Genesis 47, Moses tells us that right before Jacob died, he made Joseph promise him this. Please, if I found favor in your sight, place your hand under my thigh now and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But while I lie down, while I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. That would be, of course, the land of Canaan. Now, here's a great indication of Jacob's firm belief that God would fulfill his promises, not in Egypt, but in the land of Canaan. And this is why he didn't want to be buried in a foreign land to be laid to rest, in a, but rather to be laid to rest in a family plot in the land of promise. Now, does it really matter where a believer is buried? No, I don't think so. Not from God's point of view anyway. But in this case, it was an expression of Jacob's firm belief in the promises of God. And more than that, yet another way to keep the fulfillment of God's promises of future blessing ever before the nation. You see, just as the physical land of promise was a symbol for God's heavenly kingdom to come, so Jacob's body that was brought there would be a symbol of his real bodily existence in God's kingdom already, and that someday they would all be there too. And so will we. Faith never loses sight of the promise, not even in death. In fact, it becomes even more crystal clear. In fact, it is not in life that a believer will see the com- If, I should say, in fact, it's not in life that a believer will see the coming of Messiah's kingdom, then it will be through death that he will surely enter it. And the faith in this promise, that is the guarantee of things not seen, and things hoped for, is what allows God's champion to die well, to finish the race well and strong, as a culmination of the glorious way that we lived for God all throughout our lives. Matthew Henry put it this way, quote, observe, though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout the whole, our whole lives, yet it is especially so when we come to die. Faith has its greatest work to do at last to help believers to finish well, to die to the Lord so as to honor him by patience, hope, and joy, so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's word and the excellency of his ways. That's what Isaac surely did, and that's what Jacob did as well. And not just the patriarchs 
Paul's last written words in 2 Timothy 4, which we heard read as our scripture reading for this morning, he said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Interesting way that he would characterize his death, isn't it? A drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul does the exact same thing that Jacob does. He knows he won't see the coming of the Lord, but he will see the Lord now. And he rejoices because that's what he lived for. And now that is what he is dying for. Dying is the last great act of worship that we can do on this earth. And it is fitting for us Christians, if we are mentally aware enough, to worship our great God at the hour of our death. Christians have lived their entire lives for this moment, right? At least we hope they have. To be ushered into the kingdom and into the presence of the king where faith will become sight and you will see Jesus as he is. John MacArthur, in his uh, commentary in Hebrews, actually has some excellent words to say in this regard. He says, quote, God is glorified when people leave this world with their flags flying at full mass. If anyone should die triumphantly, it should be believers. When the Holy Spirit triumphs over our flesh, when the world is consciously and gladly left behind for heaven, when there is an anticipation and glory in our eyes as we enter into the presence of the Lord, our dying is pleasing to the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. End quote. Well, let me hasten on to the last truth. The last truth tells us that faith faces death triumphantly by encouraging the saints to stay the course. By encouraging them to stay the course. This is verse 22. It says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, there's a lot here. I love this. I, I spent a lot of time with this particular verse, just reveling in, in all of the information that is behind these words. It is an encouraging word from the lips of a dying saint who was hailed as a stalwart of the faith. This was Joseph. He was dying. So what does he say? Well, he gives an encouraging word to the next generation. And he has good reason to be excited and they to be encouraged. He reminds them of the great exodus that will come for them to usher them into the promised land. When God will lead the sons of Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. Now, I said reminder. I did not say revelation for those who surrounded Joseph in his final hours, and I chose my words carefully. I'm convinced that Joseph was telling his kids something they already knew, that God would bring Israel down to Egypt, keep them there for 400-plus years in servitude to the Egyptians, and then bring them out and eventually to the Promised Land. And that was a prophecy they had heard before. I'm going to say... Why do you say that? 
they really understood all of that? Well, God actually gave this prophecy to Abraham 200 years earlier. Listen to Genesis 15, God speaking to Abraham. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not yours, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and after they will come out with many possessions, then in the fourth generation they will return here. That's what he said to Abraham. Wow, interesting. But wait, God discloses the same plan to Jacob as well. Listen to Genesis 46. Then the Lord said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also assuredly bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Hmm. Now, Jacob never left Egypt. He died there. It was Jacob's descendants that God emancipated from Egyptian bondage. So we have as part of God's promise to make Abraham into a great nation that will produce Messiah and bless people from all nations. We have the fact that Israel would face 400 plus years of slavery under cruel Egyptian oppression before God would then deliver them and bring them to the promised land, the very symbol of heaven itself. Let me ask you this. Is it a stretch to believe that Abraham passed this information on to Isaac, who then told his son Jacob, and then Jacob, who had it confirmed to him again by the Lord himself, would then tell his 12 children, at least to Joseph, who then passed it along to his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh? Not in the slightest. Oh no, this was part of God's promise of future blessing. Jacob had been settled in Egypt 17 years before he died with no hint of return to Canaan. Joseph, though he would not see the fulfillment of God's promises, knew that they would be fulfilled someday, and he wanted his bones buried in the promised land, learning how to die in a godly way from his dad. He also saw the benefit that the presence of his physical body being interred in the promised land would have on the next generation. Just as the physical land, again, of promise was a symbol for God's heavenly kingdom, so Joseph's body, now 430 years old, was brought there, and it would be a symbol of his real bodily existence in God's kingdom already, and that they too would someday join him there. Now, We're arguing that faith faces death triumphantly by encouraging the saints to stay the course. Abraham greatly encouraged Isaac with these words, and Isaac greatly encouraged Jacob with these words, and Jacob encouraged Joseph with them. None of these men, as we noted in previous studies, ever saw the fulfillment of God's promises on the earth, and they knew they wouldn't, but they were sure They would come, and that was enough for them to stay the course. God gave his promise of future blessing to each man who handed handed them down to each of their children. They lived these promises. They lived in light of them. And when it came time to die, they reminded 
their children of these promises in order to encourage them to also stay the course. Remember what God has promised. Remember the covenant that he made with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph would say, perhaps, in essence. Well, they belong to you. Live for them. Center your life around them. And once Israel was in the promised land, they, they still anticipated the coming of Messiah to usher in his rule and his kingdom, of which Jerusalem was just a type. Now, don't miss the pattern here with the death of God's saints. When they know their time has come, they receive death triumphantly because of God's sure promises of future blessing. They were catechized in it. They lived for it. They anticipated it. They ordered their lives around it. So at the moment of their death, they could welcome it. And they did. For them, at this moment, death was the means by which they would finally see and experience in glory what they had so longed for and lived for on the earth. And because they're so sure, so confident, and ready to be with their God in his glorious kingdom, all they can do is encourage those who surround them by way of reminder. Do we see this theme in the New Testament? We do. Absolutely. Peter is an example of this. <clears throat> you know, Jesus told Peter that, and the rest of the disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I will bring you and take you to myself. That was the promise. And it was this promise that would keep them ministering faithfully, even in the worst of situations. But Jesus did give Peter more information. It was shortly after his resurrection that Jesus was seen walking with Peter on the beach. Do you remember that? Truly, truly, I tell you, he said to Peter, when you were younger, you used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted, but when you grow older, you will stretch out your hands and someone will put your belt on you and bring you where you do not want to go. Now he said this indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. <clears throat> Noteworthy observation here. John would say that this kind of death was what would glorify God. Just another indication of how precious in the sight of the Lord or the death of his saints. But it would appear that Peter would not would not live to see the return of Christ. He knew that. Jesus said so. He would die even a martyr's death. Peter lived knowing that he would not live to see the fulfillment of the promise of God's future blessing that Christ would usher in at his second coming. But the promises were enough for him. He lived for them. He centered his life around them. He anticipated them nonetheless. And when death was imminent for the apostle, he writes his last epistle for the purpose of encouraging the brethren to stay the course, to seek the promises of God and the coming of Christ, to live for them, to order their lives around them, to anticipate them. He said, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder." knowing that laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I also will be diligent then to tell you, so that after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. There's the encouragement. Through the platform of death, 
of the Christian. Christians who face death are in a unique position to speak loudly of the fact of heaven, especially if they've lived for it all of their lives, anticipated it, looked for it, ordered their lives around it. Death for them is simply the means that God uses to usher them to glory and that they themselves can use to encourage the saints to press on. Faith faces death triumphantly by encouraging the saints to stay the course. I want to say that death is an activity that no other human being can experience with us. But we Christians don't go it alone. The Holy Spirit is with us through the entire experience to usher us into the presence of the Lord. We have believed this all our Christian lives. So it makes absolute sense that we would die in a way that confirms this. We have been given such assurance by those in Scripture. And we can give such assurance then in turn to those who witness our death that the Lord is faithful and that they too should live by faith. It also, it also becomes our time of private worship to the Lord. We humbly submit to his will for us and we rejoice to know that we will see him soon and see what we have so longed for our entire saved lives. And we can encourage other Christians by, by the way we live this, leave this world to live by faith and stay the course as well. In case you missed it, this is not about death. This is not a message about death. This is a message on how we live by faith. And we came through the back end in order to show and demonstrate how important it is that we do just that. How Christians face death will depend on how they have faced life. I'm going to close with the words of James Montgomery Boyce, who was my pastor for four years, while I lived in Philadelphia. When he was diagnosed with aggressive liver cancer and was given only six months to live, he gave a statement to his church. It's quite lengthy, and it's worth reading. You should read it, but I'll give you just the one section that supports what I'm saying here, that the way a believer dies depends on how he lives. Boyce lived what he believed and it showed in the way he died. And we see it in his very last words to his congregation. Quote, If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We've talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are no, not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. It's not the answer that Harold Kushner gave in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. But what I have been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent? God's in, in charge, but he, but he doesn't care? Well, it's not that at all. God is not only the one who's in charge, but God is also good. Everything he does is good. 
And what Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is how we think about these things, actually to prove what God's will is. And then it says, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is that good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Yes, of course. But the point of it is that it is good and pleasing and perfect to us. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's why we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do, end quote. You face death the way you've lived, and you will die the way you've lived. So let's make sure that we live by faith and the promises of God's future blessing. Those are the only thing that is worth living for.